You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the 100th long-form podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here, as I have been 99 times before, with my co-hosts Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey Fireworks sound effect. Fireworks exploding Insert everywhere. Insert here. <laughs> 100. Uh, it's been quite a ride. Sure has. Sure has, buddy. I didn't think there was no way all, the way that all three of us would, would still have survived uh, 100 episodes. And there would have been like a major blowout. Yeah, still kind. talking to each other. Yeah. It really helps that we have to come to the same office every day. Yes. Helps and hurts. It's a factor. We were, gonna f- we were figuring out what to do for this 100th, and, uh, and we have decided to do a clip show in part because all of us watch lots of sitcoms as children, and I always really love those clip shows. Yeah. So I told someone we were doing a clip show, his reaction was like, oh, hope it doesn't suck like that Seinfeld clip show. Oh. <laughs> Um, it's not going to. So we're gonna we're gonna play some of our uh, favorite clips uh, from the hundred first hundred episodes um, with a little backstory chatter between them. And uh, I mean, before we start, I think it's it's worth saying uh, that we I I speak for myself, probably you guys too. Genuinely surprised at how many people have listened to this, how many people tweet at us and send us emails and you know get something out of it. I would say. At the beginning, we kind of thought, ah, this would be a cool thing to do, but it's amazing the people that listen to it, and we just like appreciate anyone who listens to any episode, much less there are people who listen to every episode. So before we start, we got a couple sponsors, as I understand it. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code LONGFORM when you're checking out. A better web starts with your website. We've got uh, one more sponsor, and they've really been with us for many of these 100 episodes. They're, it, it's almost like a fourth host. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We keep an extra chair in the room for them. <laughs> like Elijah. <laughs> <Yes>. Like Elijah, <laughs> Elijah this week, as every week, is Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It is done by the good people at MailChimp, and we thank them for all of their sponsorship of the show. It has really uh, made the thing worthwhile and and able to happen. And thanks to all of the sponsors we've had over these 100 episodes, um, people who have reached out to us who uh, listen to the show and they wanted to advertise their business, and uh, this is this is what makes it possible. 
uh, we we thank thank you to everyone who's who's been a supporter. All right, All right. enough of this. Let's get to it. Academy Awards talk. <laughs> and my mom. All right, here we go. This is the uh, third episode of the podcast, but actually taped many months before we started the podcast. It was like a pilot episode, sort of. It was when the podcast was still vaporware, <laughs> <laughs> except we weren't yeah. selling it to anyone but ourselves. Yeah, so it was like a the self deceiving. I think you were selling it to us, which you did very effectively. Yeah, the idea that uh, we could even we could get David Gran onto the podcast, a person that you know we all like be kind of obsessed with. If you're interested in this work, that that maybe gave it a little momentum <laughs> in my mind that it could be a real thing. It made you guys take it at least like somewhat seriously. <laughs> well, to be <laughs> but, clear, David Gran was I think all of our number one guests. Uh, so I feel like the 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 experience here was like, yeah, man, I'm I'm trying to start a little cafe. We're gonna have an open mic night. I'm trying to trying to lead off with Led Zeppelin on the first night. <laughs> <laughs> also, it should be noted there was only one microphone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like uh, it is like that, except like Led Zeppelin showed up and like uh, you had no amps or like any yeah. PA system of any yeah. kind. Yeah, it's like uh, you guys can just do an acoustic set, right? I don't know exactly how we were intending to even do the introductions to the show because we had literally one microphone, which we had not even purchased for the show. It was just a USB microphone I previously yeah. owned. Yeah, and I went to the New Yorker to interview David Grant and just plopped that thing down on like the middle of a conference room table, <laughs> and it was just like, okay, podcasting. Still <laughs> though. I would say we got, you know, we got to hear about what how David Grant works in a yeah, real way. Yeah, and I yeah, feel like yeah. that was, I so, love this one. So this the clip we're going to play now, um, I think all of our questions and a question many people might have uh, when reading his stories, um, stories like The Chameleon, um, is uh, how does he come up with these, these twists where there's already a mystery and then another mystery sort of pops on top of it. Like these, these unbelievable twists in, in real time in the story. Yeah. I'd been, uh, that was like the number one question I wanted to ask him. And, uh, I was really surprised by his answer. You don't always know all the answers. I mean, I think, and then I think that's what kind of makes life interesting. I mean, the, the thing that makes these stories real while they are in some ways unfathomable in ways, but what also makes them real is there is a uneasiness, um, it, of certitude, um, because, there are things that are not always known and and there are elements of doubt and 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 that can be i think very haunting um you know i read a lot of detective fiction but i i think the reality of 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 understanding the world and living with doubts and and um you know is is very is very haunting and i think it can it can be i think in some of the stories um you know again you get as close as you can to all you know, and then there are parts that elude you. The stuff that's never going to get tied up. It's just never going to get tied up, and 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 um, yeah. And I mean, I think the um, you know one of the things too is in in these stories is people often ask me in how you disclose information in a story too. I mean, a lot of stories are written about our mysteries to some degree, and they have an element of mystery and. And so stories unfold, right? I mean, it goes back to the whole thing you said about the newspaper, the last graph. They would take my last graph and make it the first graph right. when I write my newspaper story. And um, in these stories, you don't say at the very end, at the first paragraph, oh, we didn't get the giant squid, right? right. You, you let the process unfold. But I think you are actually being more true to the way the world is and the way because I'm not writing about myself I'm writing about characters making discoveries in time 
and making realizations. And so when, when those initial investigators investigate Cameron Todd Willingham, they collect all this evidence and they are convinced this is the truth. And so the twist when that begins to crack is actually how it happened. When the, when the ground shifts, the ground shifts because that's the way it happened. So for episode four, I talked to John Mualem, a uh, writer for the Times Magazine, a uh, wonderful writer who happens to be a close friend of mine. And uh, this one was, to me, interesting to go back and listen to because I feel like we we are good enough friends that we we just started talking and as freelancers and as writers and sort of forgot or maybe just assume that no one would ever listen to the podcast. And so I feel like in, in a way it sort of got more real uh, than than the, I expected it. Yeah, it's like I, it, it does kind of like uh, play like you guys didn't think anyone was going to ever listen to it. And it's also, I don't know, it's like one of the more honest moments on the podcast, I think. Yeah, so here's, uh, this is John talking about, uh, mostly about what it's like to be a freelancer and, and sort of uh, the potential of being jealous of other freelancers who are out there in the world and sort of like how he deals with that vis-a-vis how I do. Freelance writer self-help group. <laughs> I mean, so much of the, both the lifestyle and then the ability to be the least bit successful at this, I think is um, just as much emotional and constitutional, you know, about your own constitution as, as it is about any real skill set. Um, Cause you just have to be able to keep this whole other layer of anxiety and, and issues that have nothing to do with actual work. You have to be able to keep it relatively calm enough to to be able to sit down and get anything done. And how do you how do you look at sort of other writers or read other magazines? Because I always thought one of the hardest things was, even if you're not a sort of really competitive person or a person who gets jealous of other people, if you are writing feature stories for magazines, every week and every month, there's you know 50 examples of people doing what you're doing in a very public way. Yeah, better. That, yeah, that you can read and say, oh, shit. I've always felt like... You know, whenever you talk to people about this, they always want to know what you know. Is it what's it like being living on the West Coast as opposed to in New York and doing this work? And I've always clung to the idea, perhaps fraudulently, that there's a benefit to living away from the center of publishing because you're not constantly running into these people. Um, you know, you you don't have to constantly measure yourself against um, you know other people, and I think that there's some truth to that. But I also think that what you're saying is is absolutely right. Um, that it does help to meet people, and like I said, it's only been in the last few years that I really feel like I've I've gotten to know, especially people sort of of our generation. Um, you know, I'm just beginning to meet a lot of those people and get to know them, and then it starts to feel more collegial. I mean, it, it does feel like you you start rooting for particular people. Um, as opposed to, you know, having to avert your eyes, you know, after you read the first graph because you're just too scared and ashamed. Um, there's a benefit to keeping everything as a complete abstraction and just trying to do your work as best as you as you can, which is for the most part what I've done. Um, but I could imagine that that being really plugged into those worlds is also also has its comfort. So next up, uh, still in the early ones, episode seven is Tanahasi Coates, who we actually had on again recently. Um, but this early one, uh, you know, we went up to his house and talked to him, and it it I don't know, it felt to me. I mean, we'd already had some some great folks on in the very early ones, but it felt to me like, oh, if we go if we contact someone 
even if we think like they're probably too busy with important things to talk to us, uh, that they were kind of open to it. And, you know, it was just, it was exciting to talk to them. And there was a million things in this one that we could have excerpted. Yeah. They'll, uh, they'll even let you come right to their house and uh, sit in the living room. It was like, it was a very warm summer day. And the other thing I remember about that is that his cat climbed into my backpack. It would be a great way to burglarize houses. You just invite someone to go on your <laughs> fictional podcast and rob them. <laughs> so here is this is uh this is Tanasi talking about uh sort of family life and how that uh helped to focus him as a writer. Sorry about how we robbed your stuff. <laughs> so I was 24 when my son was born. Um and people always say um the kids get in the way, right? But it actually had the opposite effect on me. Like, I, you know, I feel like I could have spent my 20s doing all sorts of self-destructive things. That was my natural inclination. Um, but having a kid suddenly makes that not okay, right? Um, it's fun to stay out late and get drunk and fall asleep on the subway. But if you don't come home, it's not just you that's in trouble. You know what I mean? Like, there are other people who are now at stake. Um, by that point, I was a writer. That was what I, you know, had chose to do. Either I was going to do that well or other people were going to suffer. So everything, like the stakes of everything just went up. You know, I think I'm the sort of person that I just, I, I for whatever reason, and I probably will dive in also because of this, I only respond to pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, and that just so, I mean, that kid just so raised the pressure for everything. Here we are at episode nine, longtime friend of, of long form and the long form pad, podcast, Jean Marie Laskus. Uh, uh, Max and I go down to um, uh, Pittsburgh once a semester and talk to um, Jean Marie's writing students. Uh, it's a great program out there, and uh, she's 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 always got got something crazy to talk about. She does. She's one of these people, you know. You like uh, you hang out with her for ten minutes, and you're convinced you've known her for years, you know. And that's kind of what we were talking about here uh, was just this way she has with people, and the way that she connects with people and gets them to open up and she spends all these time with folks and uh you know i've actually felt her doing it with me before and uh, so i sort of asked her about that and she really was like she really tried to answer all those kind of an impossible question if i'm doing my job right i'm blank you know i'm a i'm a sponge i'm just drinking up what this person's giving to me so if i'm if i'm you know successful i probably have reached that I just don't think it's that different from like being like a friend with someone. I don't. I don't have any awareness of what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know what I'm talking about either. I mean, I just. I, I guess I'm. Uh, that seems like that seems like the thing that maybe I was looking for is is that your relationship with the people that you're covering it seems to me is quite similar to how I've seen you relate to people when you're not going to write about them. I'm just a writer going in here, you know. I'm not really, what do you do with that kind of intensity of a, of a relationship when you're, then your job is to this, evoke it on the page. It's a huge, not just privilege, it's like responsibility. Because, you know, it's just for a story. And I t- tell them that, you know. Like, I'm asking you to trust me, but at the same time, I'm telling you, don't trust me. You know, I'm kind of like a vulture in this relationship. We're not friends. The next one is uh, is from episode 10 uh, with Chris Jones, which is was funny partly just because uh, he and I were at a, at a journalism writing conference in Romania. And uh, 
I had said, hey, I'd never met him before. And I said, hey, maybe you could do the podcast. And then uh, we talked to the organizer of the conference. And we're like, maybe we could maybe we could do a live one. And then they just filled this room with people. I don't even, I mean, I guess they were journalism students or something. Um, but we ended up doing it before this big crowd. Yeah, this uh, one's super raucous. <laughs> yeah. And we were both drinking sort of like throughout the whole thing. It was yeah, you were, like, you were drinking, uh, drinking beer. Yeah. Stomaching the beer. I know. That was, it, was, it was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> I understand that uh, later that night uh, th- uh, someone went to the hospital. It was actually it was it was the next night that uh, someone went to the hospital after uh, a trampoline, a middle of the night trampoline uh, accident, which tells you something about uh, how that conference ended up. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to this conference. <laughs> but Chris Jones, uh, he both sort of uh, talked about how he worked, but also kind of like got into some personal issues that uh, I thought were, you know, pretty, pretty amazing to hear him. Uh, talk about because I feel like you know online and other places people don't know that that side of him necessarily. I'm reading the biography of David Foster Wallace right now, the DT Max, the DT Max book, and I fear so much that young writers are going to read something like that and think, for me to be a great writer, I have to be mental, I have to be a head case, and it's not true. You can be a great writer and be totally, totally sane. Um, I think sometimes people romance things like depression or romance things like um, broken hearts. And it's once you've been there, there's nothing romantic about it. It It's awful. Um, Like I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And for me it was, I was a very, you could not rock me up or down for the first probably 30 years of my life and then I just suddenly started swinging and it's like how for me it's like how you know if you're looking at your soup you're walking with your soup and if you look at it you start to it starts to slosh a little and once it starts sloshing you you can't stop and then you and it just if you look at it you spill more for me once it started it just was really hard to crack and I think if you have ever gone through depression the first time you do, you don't know what it is and you don't know that your life is ever going to feel different. You suddenly get into this spot where you're like, I can't see how my life will ever get better. And for me, there was two instances where, you know, I thought seriously about uh, killing myself. And I, I think that the other thing is we put all nice words into it, we, you know, passing away or leaving us or... You know, suicide is killing yourself. It's it's choosing death over life, um, and it's it's nothing fun or romantic or beautiful or poetic. It's it's shit, and it's it's. Um, I wrote that story because I hope that people who were in that same spot, especially people who were in that first skid of depression, would read it and think, okay, maybe there's a when I can, I can get out of this. Maybe there's a way I can get out. And, you know, I, I got out. Hey, uh, looks like on this clip, I was talking to Charles Duhigg. We're on episode 22. Um, Charles Duhigg, when, when we had him on the show, he was off of doing all those Apple stories um, for the New York Times in an eight or nine part series. Um, and I want to talk to him about that. But I sort of ended up talking to him um, 
different people in the show. I don't know if you guys have this experience. A lot of people are like, if I couldn't write, I'd like, I'd be in jail. It's the only damn thing I could do with my life. Yeah, people it, always say, yeah, I don't have any other skills. Yeah, I don't have any other skills. Work out. Right. And I, I don't believe that. But of all the people, I would not believe that about um, Charles Duhigg. You could really imagine him doing many, many different things at a very high level, and I think he's aware of that. He's he's also he's written a book about productivity. Um, I think he he's a he's a competitive guy who who could excel in many fields, um, and he talked about that uh, in, in this clip. You should go into everything assuming that you are going to be as successful as you can conceive of. Because that, that ultimately ends up being true, right? As long if you have the ability to work hard, and I knew I could work hard at that point. I knew I could work 100 hours a week. And if you're smart, and I knew that like life had sent me signals that like I was smart enough to figure stuff out. If those two things are true, then you should assume that over time, you are going to be as, as successful as you hope you will be. And so then the question becomes, okay, assuming that, that the best case eventually becomes true. Mm-hmm. What is the choice that I want to make where I will be happiest once I am successful? Because once you are successful, it doesn't, life actually gets harder in many ways once you're successful. And number two, how am I going to be happiest on the path to success, right? Because if I'm eventually going to become a U.S. senator or become a best-selling writer, it might take 10 to 15 years. And so which of those paths is that 10 to 15 years going to be happy? And then once I actually get that position, once I hit that point, which of them is going to be more is going to make me happier. So for this next one, uh, I interviewed Matt Power, who uh, this was episode 29. And uh, Matt, as most people will know, or a lot of listeners will know, passed away earlier this year. And, uh, you know, there are lots of reasons that we would include this in the show, not least that he was a great friend of all of us and an amazing person. And a great supporter of the show. Absolutely a great supporter of the show and, you know, connecting us with writers and connecting writers with writers. You know, that was his his yeah, he, thing. He just loved this stuff. Yep. And and uh, and it really comes through in that in that episode. Yeah. And I think it's uh, in this particular moment, you know, I think he really captures like his approach to writing and his approach to the career, which is, you know, really driven by a sense of adventure and enthusiasm for life and a curiosity about people that I think, you know, a lot of people feel but can't articulate in the way that uh, that he did and and after he passed they they played a few cl- um, clips of the show um, uh, in various memorials on NPR and stuff and it's I don't know it's always cool to be able to hear someone describing what they do in their own words I mean lots of times when someone dies you don't you're hearing a sort of a omniscient narrator narrate their life and um, I thought it was I'm just really happy we have this recording of him talking about his own life there was some aspect of me which I guess is that like kids sense of adventure which which I, I don't think I could have resisted even if I'd thought better of it you know mm-hmm. um, and this is in a lot of ways probably why I became a writer why I got into this stuff in the first place is because like I wanted to have the kind of life that I you know not to be the story exactly but I wanted to experience the, the sort of limits of, of things you know do you talk about that actually the f- opening to this story that you wrote for Harper's about taking up this like raft house homemade raft down the Mississippi the opening of that story you talk about sort of like how you met this guy who was a real true kind of free spirit and you always felt like you were drawn back to you could do these little adventures but then you were sort of drawn back to something more conventional and then get tired of it and go out again is that how you got 
I mean, has that how you got into journalism in the first place? Uh, I mean, I think it was that love of of uh, wanting to both do things and then to tell stories about them. I, I you know, I'd, I I don't know if it was not exactly like seeking for a higher truth, but really wanting to just have an um, uh, the experiential aspect of it be be sort of sort of overwhelming. Because the kind of stories I've gotten to do have involved basically fulfilling all of my childhood fantasies of adventure, like having an adventurous life, I've never felt, even though I don't, you know, even though you don't make a ton of money doing it, I've never felt that I was um, missing out on something. You know, I haven't worked in an office since a two-week stint as a fact checker at House and Garden Magazine in 2001 was the last time I worked in an office. So that's 12 years. Um and I haven't starved to death yet. I mean, I, I, but I've also always lived in very sort of weird or, or you know, flexible situations. You know, I, I lived for a long time in like an artist collective where I think the rent was, I think my rent, I lived in a windowless crawl space and I think it was $350 a month or 375 something like that. Um, you know, New York is a hideously expensive until you're willing to do some really weird things, and then it's not that bad. <laughs> All right, here we are at episode 37, Ann Friedman. Ann Friedman. Ann Friedman. Ann Friedman's a uh, good friend of, of all of ours, and uh, on one of her uh, semi-frequent stops in New York, she she came by the office, and uh, she, she was the editor-in-chief of Good Magazine, and uh, we got into uh, we got into like the bloodletting there. It was like the only time she ever talked about it. I think pretty sure she regretted talking about it, which is why that's not going to be the clip we play. <laughs> uh, the clip we're going to play is uh, she had this like this this thing that she actually talks about a lot, uh, but it's about how um, like she really believes in like not kissing up, but like kissing sideways, and she's like a big believer in like supporting people that are on the same level of, as you are professionally and. Um, this this like this moment in in the show just got a lot of uh, feedback. Seemed to really be pretty inspiring, particularly to like uh, young women, young young lady journalists. We'll be doing a separate show, um, most regrettable moments. <laughs> the notion of kissing kissing up is is super weird to me. It's like you should always be like kissing down and sideways, like you know, <laughs> like the people who are going to be um, who are going to be working sort of alongside you and and um, and who are coming up behind you. I'm, I'm, I'm really aware of um, my impending irrelevance, uh, you know, or like the idea that if you make your name as someone who is excited about the future, as soon as you start getting a little bit older, it's like, you know, it's, it seems like you need to work, work harder to have that, um, to have that brand come across. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. You got to align yourself with the future, future prognosticators. Absolutely. I mean, every time I get on, and I, I really do like answer every email, like a, you know, a baby journo sends me and get on the phone with them and whatever. But I'm waiting for that day when, when I'm like, you know, actually in, in dire need of work, I'm like, you know, 65 years old because no one's retiring, obviously. None of us are <laughs> retiring. And, um, and I'm just like, I don't understand how to write like, you know, like, like on Google Glass or whatever we're going to be <laughs> yeah. like composing on. And I've become like, like one of those one of those people I want there to be some like journalist who is now a features editor somewhere or or like whatever that title looks like who remembers when I got on the phone with her in 2013 and helped her negotiate for her first salary and um and like throws me a fucking bone like like I think about that moment a lot and like that's that's how I like prepare for old age that and I do the crossword 
Uh, this clip is from my interview with Natasha Vargas Cooper, which I think is episode 39. Uh, I taped this in Los Angeles while I was out there on vacation on my friend Jake's floor in Los Feliz. Um, I was talking to her at the time about doing celebrity Q&As as sort of a way to support yourself while you take on longer, uh, more challenging stories that don't pay as well. And you'll never guess what happened next. It's basically the only moment of physical comedy in the history of the podcast, yeah, yes. I think. <laughs> I, have a, I have a very clear memory of when I was listening to the draft of this episode and I was walking through Forking Park and started like wailing, laughing, <laughs> like freaking people out. Strong. Uh, it's yeah. a great moment. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that happened. So you do that for money? Yes. And is that the, pr- that's the primary, that's your, that's your that paycheck? Helps. Yeah. You, because those are quick. Those yeah. are just quick and dirty. Those are just like, I don't know how many hand jobs a hooker gives out a night, but I assume it's the bread and butter. So it's like, these really? are just, these are hand just, jobs. Yeah. I don't know. Do people, I guess, cause they're cheap and easy and fast. Hand jays. Are, are there a lot of men paying for hand I jobs? Hope, no, I don't know what men pay for. <laughs> I feel like I'd pay not to get a hand job. Oh my God. Whoa. Whoa. Explosion. Yes. Um, um hold on. I, sp- I, uh, I timed that well. Yes. Hey, so what what happened in that one, Aaron? Uh, I spilled. A, I think I spilled a glass of water. <laughs> at the moment where it, it just happens at an incredible moment of the discussion that you're having. Uh, there's another point. There's another point in that uh, episode where Natasha was talking about getting pulled over and getting a um, DUI and spending the night in jail with no underwear. And the person whose apartment we were taping in, like, walked in, like, directly during that story. So, <laughs> And then you just knocked over another glass of water? Yeah. I, I actually had a whole queue of water glasses up there for as many punchlines as possible. Uh, who's up next? Episode 43, uh, Marguerite Fox. She writes obituaries for the New York Times. Great obituaries. Memorable yeah. obituaries. Yeah. Yeah. She, her, her obits are, like, uh, constantly on that most emailed list. Yeah. Kind of things that people pass around. She, um, another... Uh, distinctive thing about her I was I'd never met her before and I went to the Times to interview her and um, I just I've never met anyone like her she, she doesn't just speak in like complete sentences she speaks in like complete paragraphs she talks exactly like she writes uh, and it was just it was tons of fun uh, this was kind of a um, off the beaten track one because she is an arbitrary writer um, and uh, I think in the next 100 we're gonna try and try and do some more of those so uh, stay tuned you do get emotionally involved with people, even though, of course, as a journalist, you're not supposed to. But as a human being, how can you not? Uh, particularly people who had difficult, tragic, poignant lives. But there are also people that you just wish you had known. And the, the kind of painful irony is you're only getting to know them by virtue of the fact that it's too late to know them. Right. And truly the absolute best compliment that any obit writer can get from a reader is, uh, well, it takes one of two forms and either one is great. They'll say, I read your obit and I thought, gee, I wish I'd known that person, which is exactly the effect we're trying to achieve. And better still is they say, I read your obit and I felt I did know that person. Then we know we've done our job. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause this 100th episode of ours for just a second and tell you a little bit more about our sponsor. It's Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Uh, It really is super simple. If you don't know anything about building a website, 
Squarespace is the answer. It's simple and easy. The design is gorgeous. You just pick a template. It works out of the box. You can drag and drop things around where you want little widgets and cash registers, whatever you need. It's all there. They've figured it all out. If you do hit a snag, you probably won't, but if you do hit a snag, they've got 24-7 support through live chat and email. They've got people in New York and Dublin and Portland. You will not go wanting for support. Uh, Plans start at just $8 a month. You get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. All the design is responsive too, right? So it'll work on your phone or your tablet or wherever. You don't have to worry about it. That's the point. Squarespace.com. If you go and use the long form code at checkout, so when you're paying, put in the code long form, you're going to get 10% off. Uh, But you don't even have to do that yet. You can go right now. Start a free trial. No credit card required. Start building your website today. When you do upgrade, use that code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off. Thanks to Squarespace for sponsoring the show. They've done so several times over the course of these hundred, and uh, we really appreciate it. All right. Let's get back to the memories. All right, episode 57, Eli Saslow. This one was was really... Uh, fun one to do. I went down to Washington and I interviewed him at the post and it was like the week after Bezos bought the paper and he had just had a kid. It was just kind of weird energy in the building. People were people were a little stressed out, a little freaked out about it. I that. feel like a nice update to this one is that uh, that change in ownership has not changed what Eli Saslow does. Like they're letting him do what he does. It hasn't changed. I was gonna I was gonna say like that's has anything happened with like everyone was like, well will the post be like publishing only on the Kindle has anything really changed? They're hiring people. I think that's the main thing is it it feels like there's energy there and they've hired like a number of really good people in the last couple months that I've seen. So Yeah, and they definitely are like continuing to support Eli in this work. Like he's just allowed to go out and tackle these huge projects. Yeah. And uh this was a really great episode. He really got into into like the the sort of like dirt of his reporting. But uh, the thing we're talking about here was a story that he wrote about a family in Newtown that had lost a lost a child. It's just it, it's a it's a really interesting and unusual relationship to be with somebody as a reporter, whether it's it's with the Bardens or whether it's it's you know being on a on a bus all day in Tennessee with a bunch of kids who don't have enough to eat and then you know at 10 o'clock when the reporting day is over going back to the hotel and getting room service I mean it's just there's there's sort of a a contrast sometimes in what we do that just just feels a little bit shitty we were talking about your Newtown story uh, about the family who lost their seven-year-old and what I was saying was that over and over again in the story, there are these big moments in there, there are these small moments in there, these these small, tiny details, you know, putting gummy vitamins in the bottom of his smoothies. It's just it's just never okay. Like they like there's no break from it. There's like no there's no respite from it. There's no like chance to take a breath or chance to laugh or anything. It's like there's it's it's never okay. Right. What what was it like to write, Eli? I mean, like how how did it affect you? to spend all that time with those folks it was um yeah it was really hard but but i i feel uh guilty even even saying that or i feel like it's not really my place to complain about it being hard for me to write because i wrote the story and then i got to leave it and even when i was writing the story i was only experiencing what they were experiencing in like a super fractional way so the hard part was that it was a story where you're right there's no there are no breaks there's no uh it is it is this relentless sort of bottomless pain. There's one scene in the story in a diner where they go for, for breakfast where this mother of another kid uh, who, who had been a classmate of Daniel's um, 
the previous year and, and who had survived by hiding in another bathroom during the attack, they happened to come into this diner for breakfast and, and for his birthday breakfast, for his birthday breakfast, which was this totally the most crushing reporting moment. You know, it's, it's, uh, sitting in that diner with them, um, while that was happening was, uh, I mean, those are the moments that you, that you know are important and that you work for, but they're also like, you know, that, that was, I hope I don't have another like sort of 10 minutes of reporting. That's, uh, that is just as just, just watching that heartbreak. Um, uh, you know, just, just brutal. Next up, Malcolm Gladwell. This was, uh, episode 62. Um, and he was to that, to that time, the most famous person that we'd had on the podcast. And we got him on, he had a book coming out and, uh, I went to his house. Max came to do the sound and uh, I wanted to get there early. Uh, I don't remember if I told you guys this afterwards, but I, I wanted to get there early because, uh, you know, we had a short window. And I got there early, and I went around the corner to a cafe and sat down with a cup of coffee and realized that Malcolm Gladwell was sitting right next to me, basically at a table right next to me. And I kind of, like, uh, hung out there awkwardly uh, until he left and then went to his house and rang the doorbell because uh, I didn't feel like he wanted to be bothered by, you know, the, uh, someone who was about to interview him for an hour uh, <laughs> at the coffee shop. So uh, it was a little weird, but I don't think he knew. I you don't, don't think you, re- you don't think he realized? No, I think he didn't say anything. I like to think that even if he did realize, he knew not to make you feel all awkward about not saying hello. Yeah, he's like this amateur hour podcast interviewer. Uh, I'm just gonna cut him a break. Um, but it I, was have, still- I have a question for Max on this one. Yeah. Um, what was the best thing you stole from Malcolm Gladwell's house? <laughs> <laughs> well, from, so from Tanahasi's house, I got a bunch of flatware. And, and do uh, you keep this stuff like in a burrow? Well, how do you guys think like uh, we're ever cutting any checks for this show? Just <laughs> pawning all of Gladwell's shit. You're cutting checks for the show. <laughs> you got that three dollar check yesterday, right? Um, uh, so here's Gladwell. He's talking about uh, in this particular clip. He's talking about uh, a writer that he feels like he can't do what this writer does. Pretty interesting. You know, my great hero as a writer is Michael Lewis who I, I just think Michael Lewis, I think Michael Lewis is, believe it or not, the most underrated writer of my generation. I think he's the one who will be read 50 years from now. Um, and I think what he does is so extraordinary from a kind of degree of difficulty standpoint. Mm-hmm. His ability to make someone who is sort of marginal and eccentric to see what's beautiful about them, he wrote a book about Maury Taylor. I don't know if you read that one. About this random guy who ran for president maybe 20 years ago. He was just a sort of a crank, <laughs> but a lovable crank. And the, the beautiful thing about Michael Lewis, and I, sort of, I learned this from him, is that he takes people completely at face value. He never questions your, your sort of sincerity, which is this extraordinarily hard thing to do and a lovely thing as well. I don't think... Uh, people realize how hard it is to do a single narrative book. Michael, one of the one things I admire about Michael Lewis, he seems to be able to do it effortlessly. I don't really think I could pull it off. Maybe it's because I've never found an individual whose story is rich enough. But maybe I'm just not as good at developing a single story. Um, I just think that's kind of beyond me a little bit. Um, I'm surprised to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah, I just I think it's too hard. Uh, I would lose faith in my ability to kind of keep the reader engaged. I'm much too nervous a writer. I feel like I've got to keep giving you more different stories to kind of 
padded out. Um, uh, whereas the amount of self-confidence that you feel in Michael Lewis's work or Janet Malcolm's work, I mean, I was just rereading Psychoanalysis and Impossible Profession. That book is just like, it's, and same thing with um, The Journalist and the Murderer. She's so extraordinarily sure of her gift. She's not in any hurry to start, and she knows you stay with her, right? Because she knows she can deliver, right? You're not going to run out of gas halfway through. I don't have that uh, certainty. You know, she's, to use a sports metaphor, Janet Malcolm and Michael Lewis are the people you, who are quite happy to take the last shot. I'm going to pass. I, I'm, not, I'm not taking the last shot. <laughs> All right, we got another uh, another big one. Now that we're on the big names, we just can't stop. Yeah, this was uh, this play is the a, hits. This is a fun night, man. This is uh, uh, episode sixty four, Gay Talese, live at live at NYU. Live at NYU. There's a bunch of people there, standing room only. They're like, turning people away at the door. Yeah, and uh, man, he was just great. They almost turned Nan Talese away at the door. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's he's a he's a one of a kind. Yeah, he's just a magical dude. He was he was uh, he he was just like on. From the start, it took him a little while. It took me like a little while to like break him. Yeah, he's, he's got like uh, he's got his hits. He's yeah, got his uh, he's got his shtick. I would I would say I've seen him actually twice this year, and he's got I think he's probably got ten hours of, of solid off the cuff anecdotes that he could just tell. <laughs> like he you could put him in. And he's like, okay, we're at a bris, and he would just he would go. He would tell a story <laughs> about it. But, but then uh, uh, then we, we afterwards we got the chance to go to dinner with him. Which was pretty funny. Yeah, it was amazing. It was him, his wife, and his cousin Nick, who was just like this incredibly dap, possibly the only person who was competing with uh, with gay in, in terms of uh, sartorial excellence. Uh, yeah, it was awesome. There was like a, I don't know, probably like ten of us, and yeah. we were all like crowded around this super tiny table that like at the Knickerbocker. Yeah, and uh, like Talise was flirting with my wife the whole time. I was, like, <laughs> super into it. <laughs> But then we didn't actually realize that his cousin, his close friend and cousin, yeah, was I kept, there. I kept asking him like like about himself, and he was like, "Well, I used to be a writer. I used to be a crime writer." And it was it was Nick Pelleggi who wrote the book and screenplay that Goodfellas is based on. Yeah. He wrote the movie Casino. Also, he was married to Nora Ephron. Yes, yeah. extremely unassuming man. We're gonna we're gonna have him on. I actually this after amazing after that dinner, I went on Amazon. I was looking at his books. He wrote. Um, at one point, Playboy had a book press, and he wrote the first book, in it, and it's called Private Eye, and it's a book-length profile of a Long Island private, private investigator. So I'm going to read that. We're going to have try and get him on. That'll be great. There's one more thing about that dinner, which I feel like we should just note, which is that uh, towards the end, yeah. Talise got up. No one really noticed. He went surreptitiously, paid the entire bill, yes. walked back with his coat on somehow, yes. and was just like, we're going. Yeah. He basically like ran out on the check, but it was like paying the check and running out on yeah, us. Yeah, it exactly. was amazing. It's just like your time with us is done. Yeah, I think uh, Gatelys is winning in the game of life. Basically, yep. that's pretty awesome night. Now, a lot of people that I I meet who go to journalism schools complain there are no jobs. You have to think of journalism as an art form. You have to think as a journalist that if you want to do a kind of writing that you might think is on my level. You have to think of yourself as an artist. I thought of myself as a short story writer. The short story writers that I admire were, were artists. They're John Cheever and they were John, John O'Hara. But when you get to know success stories in the world of the art of theater, of movies, of dance, all the art forms, those young people, some of them went to college. They wanted to be 
an actor. And what do they do? They audition and they work in restaurants and they drive taxi cabs. They do a lot of grubby things to pay the rent. And when they can squeeze some time into taking, to getting an audition or, 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 or maybe practicing or however actors practice, they don't just go out of college, go to Yale Drama School and then find a job with a serious drama company or get a place in a, in a, in a, in a play. And so the journalist has to do the same thing. The journalist wants to do that kind of writing that we will call journalism as an art form. Instead of doing crap for newspapers, it'd be better they work in a restaurant and find time when they're not working in a restaurant to do the kind of research to fulfill your, your ambition as a curious person because you want to write about a certain place or a certain thing or a certain subject. Maybe you have to do it on your own. If you're going to keep working on a newspaper, you're not going to do it because they're going to tell you what to do and how long you can do and how little time you have for it. So just think of yourself as an artist and think of yourself, you know, the actors now, you think that Robert De Niro was a big success and or, or all these big names. Some of them, when they were 24 years old or 21 years old, before they were got a break and discovered and did a, something that made them hireable, were doing grubby things like cleaning toilets in some restaurant. So get a job in a restaurant. <laughs> okay, for our next clip, um, this is uh, one of the more popular episodes uh, that's aired uh, with Elizabeth Wurzel. Popular uh, for good reason. Yeah, she is an entertaining person. I don't think anyone can say anything different than that. Um, she she does not give a fuck. Um, <laughs> she is definitely the most unse- unfiltered um, guest we've had on the podcast, and uh, I really like talking to her. Uh, in this clip... Uh, she is talking about people who, who feel like she's too critical or too mean. Uh, I really recommend, if you did not listen to this one the first time around, you should go back and listen to it. I was just looking, I remember this text message I got from a different guest who I guess I should, probably shouldn't name in this case, but it, it's just all caps, you guys are doing interviews that will go down in history. <laughs> Uh, basically something special about this and I'm not even sure what it is if you yeah I think that it's I think we've got a real chemistry me me and Elizabeth Wurzel but uh, if you find this clip amusing uh, there is a full hour uh, available for your streaming I was gonna say she was great she's great she killed it she was she uh, came on with game yeah she had less fear than anyone who's been on the show yeah yeah just because you have a story to tell doesn't mean you should be telling it it's got to be well written it's not your gift to give the world just because like you have a pen or you have a computer or you have a typewriter or whatever do you think you're do you think you could have come out if uh, with a book like this today like prozac nation if you were 25 now would would this would this book work would it be the same i would like to think i'd come out with something else shocking because i'd still be me i mean things that are good are still good and rare and they're still rare, you know. It's like, but I think something really, somebody has to invent some other new thing now. I mean. What do you mean by that? I don't know. There's got to be some other new thing. Like, the truth is not like the new thing anymore. Like, it's no longer shocking. I feel like it's funny, you know. I feel like you can shock people now by saying that, like, Lena Dunham has inexcusable thighs. I mean, she does. You just ruined my next question. No, go ahead. I guess, like, that's what's shocking is that, like, you, you know, that you're critical. I mean, apparently, like, you can't be mean. I look at the comments about things I write. Yeah. And they're pretty fucking mean. Yeah. I mean, so, like, I don't know why I can't be mean in the things I say 
signed by me. Thank you, Elizabeth Wurzel. Um, what do we have up next here? Ah, yes. Uh, episode 67, uh, I talked to Evan Wright, who wrote uh, Generation Kill. Um, he, this is, uh, for, for anyone, uh, I really recommend this episode. He was probably my favorite guest I've had on the show. He's fantastic. But he also- the man, Man's got stories. Man, yeah. man has got stories. Well, to, to set up this clip, one of he has many stories because he was for a while the porn reviewer at Hustler, That's, <laughs> which is one of the great. I mean, we have a lot of people talking about what they did along the way and the yeah. like crazy fucking jobs they had to do in order to get into yeah. to writing and journalism. But this is this is up there. Well, the interesting thing is he wasn't like I want to be like a, a respected uh, journalist, but I'm going to use this porn reviewing job as a stepping stone. He was just a porn reviewer at Hustler, <laughs> and I think at that point he started having some literary ambitions. Um, but in this clip, he's talking about he was going to be able to cover the AVN awards for a, for a mainstream magazine, but then he got um, uh, someone else who uh, the bigger name wanted to do it, so he ended up escorting that guy and being his guide, and that writer was David Foster Wallace. So this is about uh, Evan Wright and David Foster Wallace going to the AVN awards together. At Hustler, I was so out of like the mainstream that when they said, David Foster Wallace is going to do this story. I was like, who the fuck is David Foster Wallace? <laughs> what kind of pretentious douchebag has like three names? This is like Mr. Howell, you know? And and then that night I was having coffee with a friend and he was holding a book. He's like, you got to read this book. This guy's great. And it was a David Foster Wall- Wallace book. And I was like, who is this motherfucker? I took the book and I was reading it. And I was like, wow, he's he's okay. And um, so I, I actually contacted Premier and I said, if if he needs any help, I will give him access to my contacts. He and I um, became good friends very quickly. And so you would think it was a formula to like continue hating him or to, I don't know, have a complicated relationship. But what I learned from him is that he was very generous with me, like his encouragement. Now, Daniel Max published a book about him yeah. And we were talking and Daniel kind of said, well, he was probably friendly to you because you weren't like a threat because you were like, <laughs> such a loser. So he, you know, but to other like real writers, he would have been more competitive, but he was super nice. So what was it like watching him report that story? It was interesting because uh, he actually kind of sat in a corner with um, his pad of paper and did a lot of writing. And he said that he... I hadn't thought of this concept. He he would try to like come up with some paragraphs and sentences in the moment. And I had always done I'd already done some of my reporting, like real reporting. I'd never thought of that. I always do like notes and just interviews. So and we were only in Las Vegas for a few days and I thought, "Oh, there's no way he's going to really capture this." But he really nailed the industry. Yeah, that's one of the best stories that uh, will ever be told on the podcast, I think. <laughs> um Episode 75, another pretty good storyteller, George Saunders. We recorded this one in the uh, back of McNally Jackson. and uh, That was one of the weirder yeah. locations. He was like about to do this thing with uh, Ben Stiller right after, and we like walked out, and there was just like a massive crowd of people waiting there for him. Uh, also, as discussed in the intro to that episode, I think I was in there doing the sound in this tiny room, <laughs> You're, like, and the crammed phone behind a door. kept ringing of people calling for tickets to the event, and people from the shop kept trying to open the door. So there was just a lot of moving parts uh, <laughs> in this particular episode. Yeah, he, he, was, uh, he, was pretty, he was pretty game. He was pretty game in that conversation. He, he's winning the uh, best human being 
uh, award for yeah, yeah he's got real advice on the show for life yeah uh, yeah this is uh this is the least writerly advice that uh this clip that, that will play on the show but uh it's pretty good life advice in that in in that speech and in Budaboy is this this construction that's that uh sort of forces the listener or the reader or whoever to think about like being on their deathbed yeah. and what are you going to really care about and what's really important and and what are your regrets and oh I want to ask you w- what those are for you well I don't know that you know that's the thing I I mean I've had intimations of it and uh part of the thing is I think you could do work in the time before your death to uh get ready for it and it, there's no facile you know that's what spiritual life is about and the traditions that we all know that's what they're about you know you know when you're saying goodbye to somebody at the airport that you love and you get all soft you're like oh my god i didn't even hardly i hardly knew you you know that kind of feeling what if that's the truth that 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 mode is the mode that times 10 you know maybe is the mode that we should exist in all the time then they then another day you're just yourself you know uh there's a big gap between those two people so my regret would be how much time did I spend in that regular old stupid habitual mindset of taking everything for granted as opposed to this exalted state of being super tenderized to the people you care about. And I'm guessing that if there's a heaven, it's that at the airport times 10 or 20 or 1,000, you know. So I think the regret would be that you, like a lunkhead, you spent so much time in that normal state. Well, I wonder what I'm going to do today. I hope my book is selling, you know. Uh <laughs> How do I look? Oh, I'm going bald. But but instead of it, that mode is habitual, but we know from the occasional foray into it that the other mode is possible. So then the speech basically says, hurry up, take my advice, hurry up, try to get into that higher state while you can. How do you do it? I don't know. I'm I'm stupid. I'm like a, a latecomer. But, but there's these thousands of years of spiritual traditions that wouldn't be a bad place to start. So next up is Dan P. Lee. He was a couple episodes later, number 77. And, uh... I really loved talking to him. He was a little bit of a mysterious character. I I had loved his work, but he's sort of like hard uh, to get a hold of uh, in a way and doesn't have like any public persona at Lives all. Lives in an unheated shack at an undisclosed <laughs> location. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, and then when he came in, he just was uh, fascinating to to talk to, and he really got into it about about his career and how he works, but also you know things he doesn't like about the business which a lot of people don't like to talk about because they're sort of afraid very specific things that he doesn't like about the business and also we should say like sometimes people will say things yes. and then afterwards they'll send us an email and be like can you take that thing out when and I we talk, do when i talked about that magazine we do because yeah. you know yeah i mean we don't want we don't want to um you know uh, cost someone a job here yeah um, but um Dan so I thought, being an exception to that yeah role. i thought that would be one of these things uh and he had said something about esquire and i asked him about it at the end of the interview again because i wanted to get in a little deeper and then i emailed him later just to say like hey that's cool because we tacked it on at the end and he actually wrote me back and said uh feel free to use anything you like currently without heating and hold up in a casino <laughs> in atlantic city trying to finish the story i'm a month late on actually love living here but yeah totally i don't care <laughs> here it is i am curious what the dimensions of the like esquire debacle were if they were just like the story got killed or i mean i don't i also don't want you to like shit on anyone yeah yeah um you know i don't know if it's useful for me to get into this but i'll tell you and and sort of trust you which is like the last thing you know as a reporter (laughs) you ever do Um, but I think that's why I dressed up. Yeah, exactly. You're tricking me. Yeah, man, yeah. you can trust your secrets. Yeah, exactly. Safe in this. I mean, this microphone this obviously is no, not recording just, anything. Don't worry about it's it. Just, yeah, these headphones are to keep us warm. But uh, yeah, the experience there was just that I had had an idea for um, which I'm since resurrected, 
and I'm working on now for someone else, but um, for a very kind of out there story. And um, the experience I had with the editor there was just really, really bad. And I felt, uh, frankly, that there was a kind of dumbing down um, that that needed to happen with the subject. And there was kind of a, a muscularizing up of the prose simulti- simultaneously that was going on there that just felt incredibly, incredibly um, unnatural to me. It was not my voice and that was not my story. And, you know, when you're in your I mean, I guess then I was probably in my mid 20s or so. Um, and Esquire is in front of you as a possibility. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is instructive to repeat this to people who I mean, because I don't know, you know, but that's intoxicating. And the idea that that could fall apart is so devastating. Yeah. You, know, you think, I think I'm right on the edge of some I'm right on the edge. huge I mean, it doesn't get career any bigger than Esquire. And you, you know, you, I know I had fetishized these magazines. And then, you know, that experience ended up being great because um, that isn't who I am. You know, I don't write like that. There's, you know, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to um, marginalize those magazines and say that they only do one thing. But um, certainly as a relatively no-name writer from Philadelphia Magazine, uh, my kind of experimental ideas were not, you know, did not go over well. Yeah, you're going to get, I mean, there's a house voice. You're going to get pulled into the house voice. and And some people do that incredibly well, and I envy them for that. But that's been one of the more helpful realizations that I've had is that that is not me. I don't do that. I don't do it well. And I frankly don't really connect to it all that well either. So it's easier to just be like, there's lots of magazines out there, fewer every day, (laughs) but there are magazines out there and there's a home for everyone, I guess. So one one funny thing related to the podcast overall in an anecdote like that is I just I just want to go back to when we first started. Yeah. We originally had this idea where the first 10 minutes of the podcast yeah. was just going to be us talking about magazine stories and kind of being like I think yeah, at one point one it was going to be good. the whole podcast was that we were going yeah, like, to critique stories. We were going to be like, "So what's on the newsstand this week?" Bullshit sucks sucks. <laughs> <laughs> That would be. There would have. It would be ten listeners. Well, I we also never, think we like, never would have put out that, that uh, podcast. Among the three of us, I can't even tell. Who, like, we're all cowards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that was why it reminded me of that. Was yeah. just this idea that we're going to go on and say, like, you know, that story in the New Yorker last week was really not up to par. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to go on. You know who was a terrible lead? You know who was a big (laughs) proponent of that uh, format was Josh Behrman. Yeah. Yeah. The missing host. Because you know Josh Behrman is really going to be sharply critical. (laughs) (laughs) So what do we got next? Uh, Next up we have Ariel Levy, episode 78. Uh, I read her essay, Thanksgiving in Mongolia, which uh, went on to win a National Magazine Award. Yeah, Yeah, people had very strong reaction. That was a powerful... Yeah, piece of work. I was uh, one of the people who had a very strong reaction, and I sent her an email and asked her to come on, and uh, and then she wrote back and she said yes, and then I suddenly got very terrified because I realized I didn't really know how to talk to her about uh, losing her child on a hotel floor in Mongolia, and uh, I had some time between those emails and the interview, and I still didn't really figure out how to talk to her about it. I have uh, I have worked up the courage, I think. <laughs> To do what? To ask you about Thanksgiving in Mongolia, or at least try and ask you about Thanksgiving. It's going to be easier than you think. Okay. Because it's, you know, it's like, it's news to you. It's not news to me. I'm me. <laughs> that happened to me. You know? I know that happened. Yeah. Um, 
Maybe you should tell people about it in case they have. So Thanksgiving Mongolia is an essay I wrote about the sort of uh, biggest experience of my life, I would say, which is that when I was la- a year ago, last Thanksgiving, when I was five months pregnant, I went to Mongolia to report a story. Uh, and I was five months pregnant, and I was told, and, and and for good reason, for good medical reasons, that it was there's nothing wrong with flying when you're pregnant. You don't you don't want to fly in your third trimester because oh my god, if you go into uh, labor early, you don't have a baby on a plane. But the fact is, there's no correlation between flying and miscarriage or birth. There's there just isn't. However, when I got to Mongolia. I went into labor in my hotel, and I had this baby who died. And, you know, it was the most intense experience of my life, the most epic experience of my life. And it certainly dominated my thoughts. It's it's still a fairly, <laughs> fairly, you know, large part of my thinking process. But certainly for the first year out, it was my whole head. And I wrote about it because that is what I do. And that's what I've done since I was a little kid. If something happens, I write about it. It's just what I do. Some people see a big body of water and they think, oh, I'm going to swim across it. And some people do this. Some people do that. You know, that's what I do. So that's what I did. And that's it, you know. And then I published it. That's what I did. Um, have... Have other people struggled to talk to you about it? Is it? Is it? Uh, I guess. How did it change once that story was out there? There's. A, I'm trying to figure out. Do you exactly. want me to just like help you a little bit? Yeah, just tell me a lot. <laughs> okay, I'll help you. Okay. So, before we came up with that story, my editor Nick Troutwine said, "You know, <laughs> I definitely want to publish this. We got to publish this." Did you write it for yourself? Yes. Well, I wrote. I mean, I write everything for myself. You know, like I don't mean to sound like a jerk, but I do. I mean. Here, the thing I'm trying to ask you about, okay. I guess, is okay. is uh, why put it in a magazine? Why not? Because maybe you don't want to talk to a lot of people about it. I don't talk to a lot of people about it. Did a lot of people want to talk to you about it? People write me, you know, but mostly people write me and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I say, thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Or people say, I experienced this loss or that loss. And I say... I'm so sorry for your loss. But the reason they say I had this loss or that loss is they say I felt less alone when I read about your loss. Well, that's good. I don't have a problem with that. You know, that's that's good. And I'll tell you what else. I'm a feminist, and I think that having a baby come out of your vagina on your bathroom floor in Mongolia is real. That's real. That happened to me. I'm not making that up. That happened. And if you're not going to write about that, what the hell are you doing? What kind of are you a writer? And I think the idea that blood and birth and tragedy of a distinctly female nature, you know, that's that's real. That's as real as, you know, I'm going to go hunting swordfish, whatever. You know what I mean? This is real. That's what women do is they push human beings out of themselves. That's intense shit. And it goes wrong a lot. It's gone wrong for a lot of my friends and it's gone wrong for me. And 
that's part of being a woman. That's part of being, I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, some people have better experiences with it and some people don't have children and that's all real. But this is my reality. And birth is a lot of women's reality. And I don't understand why you wouldn't write about that if you were a writer and you were a feminist and that was your reality. I don't understand why you wouldn't. Next up is Sabrina Rubin Erdley. Uh, I interviewed her for episode 84. She's a writer for Rolling Stone. Uh, I really love her work, so I've been looking forward to talking to her, trying to schedule it for a long time, and we finally sat down. I recommend the whole thing. We, uh, When we were listening to it again, this this clip stood out you know, partly because it sort of references something that we face or anyone in this you know, particular line of work faces in terms of, of byline diversity, and we think about a lot in terms of you know, even the diversity of people that we have on the show and trying to improve that and taking suggestions from people who email us about uh, guests that we should have on, whether it's different types of jobs or, you know, gender diversity or any other type of diversity. Uh, we're kind of trying to work on that. It was interesting to hear her talk about uh, the barriers that she faced trying to get into this business, a brilliant writer who uh, kind of ran up against this when she was a young writer getting into big magazines. So uh, we thought we'd, you know, play a little bit of that, uh, of her experience. I will say that the industry has actually changed, I mean, in the last 20 years, in the last like 10 years, um, in terms of its receptiveness towards women. I mean, I definitely see there being a new demand for women and for ideas, story ideas having to do with women. I mean, never before really did you see story as many stories in general interests, or certainly in men's magazines, where women were the main character. You know, you're starting to see more of that, more, yeah. more, more stories that used to be categorized as women's interest simply because there was a woman's, uh, there was a, a woman in it. So, um, in 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 addition to, I think these places starting to be more more welcoming and realizing that like diversity in your newsrooms is a good thing. You know, it leads to bigger and better ideas, a better understanding of your world. So, I think everybody's benefiting from that. Getting uh, getting close to the present day here as we've zoomed through history. Uh, next up, episode 88, I talked to Sam Biddle uh, from Valley Wag. Uh, this, is, this one was- Why'd con- you even have Sam Biddle on? This was controversial. Kind of well, the funny thing about Sam Biddle is uh, there was a lot of people up in arms uh, about him being on this show. Not a lot of people. By a lot of people, I mean like three people. But uh, <laughs> everyone I've ever talked to who- "Quote unquote," hates Sam Biddle. It's very, very familiar with his work. Um, his critics are—he uh, keeps them close. Um, he what, what he's talking about in this clip is um, being a tabloid journalist and what that means, and and why that's not not a label that he shies away from. It's something he uh, takes pride in. Valleywag is and just like Gawker dot com, they are both tabloids. Yeah, I mean, and that's. That's what it is. People often say, oh, you know, yeah, right, you guys write for a tabloid. I'm like, yeah, we'll, we'll be the first ones to admit it. The best story that I think we've covered uh, so far, it'll be almost a year since Sally Wag has restarted yeah. um, last spring, was the Sean Parker wedding, uh, the, the Facebook billionaire who had his uh, his, his nuptials in uh, a redwood, an endangered redwood uh, habitat. Uh, whenever someone is completely removed from these standards of behavior that everyone else is, uh, is, is held to, that's a great value like story. Um, uh, I mean, okay. you're dealing with people who, who live in a fantasy world, um, both of in, in, in terms of what makes sense as a business and what is okay behavior for a human. I mean, you, you have people who will, uh, I, there was one, there was one yesterday that, that will help people find, uh, you know, get paired up with private jet pilots 
and this is you know that this could be a viable business on its own is 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 nutty. Um, but then and then you have them applying the same sort of wacky senses of judgment to their private lives. So there's it usually goes both ways. Oh, looks like me again. Uh, episode ninety one. Didn't see you there. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Aaron. Uh, Michael Lewis. Um, this was. Uh, uh, this, this is this was our dream was to get him on this show. Say a little bit about who Michael Lewis is, maybe for the. I think it's actually Michelle Lewis. <laughs> um, yeah, um, we 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 tried very hard to get him on the show, and uh, at one point we said, I, I think um, we'll show up anywhere you are in the world at any time with microphones. We'll come to your house, and the response we got was, "Please don't come to my house." <laughs> <laughs> So his uh, his publicist, um, who was uh, this should be in no way uh, uh, looked at as a knock on his publicist, who was amazing, was like, "You, I'm going to get you one and a half hour. It's going to be a phone interview. It'll be thirty minutes, and then um, he will uh, then he will go." And I thought, okay, if I really entertain him and I've really got him going, he'll he'll be having a great time. He won't even notice. Just lose track so, of time. And and that was exactly how I felt like it was going. And then right on a dot, uh, the phone rang at the end, and it was a di- it was a radio interview for some Colin show, and he was just gone. So, <laughs> Michael Lewis, so you concentrated on some. Great I stuff thought in here. I thought we had chemistry, um, but uh, in this clip, he's I, I asked him um, what. If he if he had it over again when he made the switch from working on Wall Street um, to to becoming a journalist, would he do it again in the present day? And his response is quite interesting. If if you had it over again and were young now, do you think you would have made the same move to journalism? Probably not. And, and the reason I say that, I mean, if you're if you're taking some version of me uh, that is now twenty three years old. We'll put like tinkly music over this, so we so it'll signal a flashback. <laughs> uh, but it's so it's so I would have grown up in the world that a twenty three year old now has grown up in, and for the first place, I would not have probably have serendipitously ended up on Wall Street in the first place. I would never have gotten a job, and I would not have probably not gone gotten into Princeton. So I would have had a different trajectory in life, probably right from the start. You had a very negative view of future. Time traveling, Michael Lewis. Yeah, no, going backwards. Going if you took me the other direction, I might even be more of a success. But going, <laughs> but the comp- the competition has gotten steeper, uh, gotten stiffer, and so I see, I assume I would do less well. Uh, come at, at age, tw- I would be less well positioned for like Wall Street success at twenty three now than I was when I was twenty three. But let's say let's say I was you adjust me slightly and my character slightly so that I got A's in school all the time and my board scores were perfect and I was student body president and captain of the football team and so I got to go to Princeton and I worked my way into the position to get a job at Goldman Sachs. The amount of investment I would have put into getting that success would have made it virtually impossible that I would have turned my back on it. The key to my decision to like chuck a Wall Street career and go be a writer is that I put almost no effort into getting a Wall Street career, and it really landed in my lap. And I had this other thing that I had put a lot of effort into and really loved doing, which was writing. Uh, and I did it all on my own without any you know, like help from teachers or anything. I was just you know trying to freelance and having some success at it. Um, 
that, it's that in, it made it very easy for me to just walk away from it because it didn't. I hadn't invested anything to get to get it. Uh, you wouldn't be able to do that now. You'd have to have invested so much to have uh, success on Wall Street. You couldn't imagine walking away from it. For the record, I do not believe Michael Lewis's assertion that he would not be successful at these various things. I don't believe he believes that either. You should talk to Charles Duhigg. Yeah, That's Charles Duhigg, and that would be like a that would be a great debate debate off. Um, uh, for episode ninety five, which I feel like was like last week, but apparently it was actually five or six weeks ago. Um, I talked to Wesley Morris, the film critic of Grantland, uh, a charming gentleman. Um, who actually came by the office and watched a little World Cup with us. Um, in this clip, uh, I was I was asking him, you know, as, as a writer who writes movie reviews ostensibly, but often talks about race and, and gender and, and how, how our society operates, um, why he did so. And uh, I thought his response was quite interesting. So I very much remember the era, the era of... Um, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, kind of like I give it a 8.6, like, <laughs> um, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> but when I go on the internet today, and I think this is the most true of serial TV, but that probably means it's coming from movies too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there there are 45 think pieces about. Um, rape in Game of Thrones. Mm. It's almost like we want to talk about rape. Like, let's hope it's like coming up in a in a TV <laughs> show, you know, or um, uh, misogyny in True Detective. Mm-hmm. There's a level to which, past just giving a rating, now I think a lot of the ways that w- people want to talk about these larger political issues or whatever we want to call them is through the lens of pop culture and entertainment. Um, do you? I mean, does that worry you going the other direction too? That that we're sort of getting away from the material and just talking about the things we want to talk about? That's a really good question. Or are afraid to talk about no, potentially. That's a, that's a great question. Um, here's what I think. I think that this is exactly what we wanted to happen. We wanted to sort of think about what our TV and our movies and our music and our books are doing. I think that the proliferation of those sorts of pieces and that kind of thinking and that sort of engagement is is a good thing. I don't think it's bad. I do think in some ways that a lot of people aren't really equipped to do it. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I I think that there are people who feel like it's the moral thing to do to point out the fact that, you know, Madman Madman introduces this Dawn character um, played by Tiana Paris, and she's Dawn's secretary, and it seems like the show is going to devote a a chunk of itself to her and her life. And then she doesn't, nothing comes of it. She's just some secretary. But the show, at least for three episodes, makes you think that that's what's going to happen. Yeah. I would love to read a bunch of pieces about what a problem that is or what a problem it isn't. Mm -hmm. The problem for me at some point is that a lot of those pieces are about other people's pieces. Yes. It's like it's a lot of like breaking news. Like somebody was there, had a thought, published a thought, 
And then the deluge of of other thinking is based from that original thought, but only a kernel of what was interesting about that thought remains in the other thinking. Yeah. And the thing that I love reading when the people do in these sort of in these think pieces, you know, I hate, I don't like that term. No, neither do I. But I mean, whatever. It's the term we have. We have no choice. And a lot of it has to do also with having something to say that is either personal or using your authority, your position of authority. Like if you're an Emily Nussbaum or an Andy mm-hmm. Greenwald or, you know, Alessandra Stanley. Like if you're if you're if you're one of those people and you have a position from which to say these interesting things, these smart things, you should use it to say them. And if you are a person who, for instance, is a Game of Thrones fan who is tired of the sexual assault on women, yeah. I would love to read the sort of somewhat personal piece that like lays a case for why that's a problem. Funny thing about that clip is it's one of the uh, few remaining moments out of the um, massive amount of editing that Jenna Weiss-Berman had to do. I could not stop talking to Wesley Morris. He is uh, truly a, a master conversationalist, and uh, at least that one was not one like where it was. There was any reason for you to keep it short. <laughs> so uh, Max told me very, very specifically that Jenna only had one day to edit it, and that it would be best if I could make it about the length of an episode. I went ahead and made that uh, well more than twice the length of an episode, um, and uh, Jenna heroically edited it down to size on a very tight schedule. Um, which brings me to now that we're that's the last clip. Thank you present all. day. Thanks for listening. We've reached the present day. Um, the the person, the people who really uh, deserve a thank you here, and who are the uh, the fourth hosts and, and a major creative um, role behind the show, are our editors. Um, our original editor was Lauren Kirchner. She edited the bulk of the episodes you've been listening to. Um, the show would have been totally impossible without her. Um, we thank her. Uh, very sincerely for all the hard work she put in and for believing in us when we we were just talking about having a podcast and uh, didn't really seem like we were actually going to do it. Um, and also thank you hugely to Jenna Weiss Berman who stepped in on short notice when uh, Lauren departed for Greener Pastures and has been editing the show since and doing an incredible job. Um, thanks to both Lauren Kirchner and Jenna Weiss Berman. Yeah, the, uh, just to be 100% clear, the show would not have happened without the two of them. Definitely not. Definitely not. Would not happen even now. Yeah, it, it would, we, stop, would not happen would, this week. <laughs> <laughs> so while we're at it, thanking people, uh, because some of them listen to the show as well, uh, we want to thank the guests who have appeared on the show. What is that, 99? 99 guests. Extremely busy people, people who are trying to make a living writing, which is uh, not an easy thing to do, and taking out the time to come over here and talk to us or meet us in strange places uh, with microphones on ironing boards and all the strange uh, interviews that we've done on site. Uh, all, those, and w- all those nude episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are coming in the 200th episode clip show. So we just really appreciate everyone uh, you know, taking the time to come come talk to us yeah and uh we also appreciate everyone listening i think we can all agree that uh way more people are listening to the show than we ever expected that uh, yeah it has been uh it's just been really fun it's just been really fun to do it's been fun to uh know that people are listening uh it's been particularly sort of uh, gratifying to to get we've got a lot of emails particularly from like young writers uh who seem to really get some value out of hearing uh these people talk and 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 sort of share their wisdom um so thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks to all the sponsors. 
Thanks to everyone who believed that an all nude show could take off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll be back here for at least 100 more. Thanks. Leave us a review. Send us an email at editors at longform.org. We appreciate it. We'll be back next week. I'm a fool to do your dirty work. Oh, yeah. I don't want to do your dirty work no more. I'm a fool to do your dirty work. Oh, yeah. I don't want to do your dirty work no more. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta.